Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Maryland sports fans, there's only one sports book in the great state of Maryland with over 50 years' experience booking bets and supporting customers. Betfred Sportsbook at Long Shots is now open and is the only sports book in Frederick offering cash betting on football, basketball, world soccer, and more. Visit the Betfred Sportsbook at I-270 and MD-85 in Frederick, right next to Longshot's Off-Track Betting. Go to BetfredSports.com for more information and your chance to win exclusive merchandise. Must be 21 or older. Play responsibly. For help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Rocks Pack Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm here with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. Martin Collier. Oh, hello, Barney. And Jasper Mears and Bowie. Hello, Barney. And we are delighted to welcome for this episode the country music writer, publicist, songwriter, legend, Holly Gleason, all the way from <laughs> Nashville. Hi, Holly. Hello, y'all. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Really well, thank you. You are, I can see through the window behind you, what I think is known as the Batman building in downtown yeah. Nashville. And below you is the legendary Ryman Auditorium, which is wonderful. It's the new Nashville skyline. Bob Dylan had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, that's the, I think that's the first time we've collectively been referred to as y'all on one of our podcasts. <laughs> well, it's been I am, please, or serve. <laughs> Did Robert Gordon not refer to us I'm as y'all? I'm sure Candy, a crazy horse, would have referred to us as y'all. Yeah, that's possible. <laughs> anyway... For our listeners, Holly has written wonderfully about country in all its variations and has even co-written a number one country hit for Kenny Chesney, Better as a Memory. She's been a publicist for him and many other artists and is continues to work as a publicist. In 2017, she put together the essay collection, Woman Walk the Line, How the Women in Country Music Changed Our Lives. Holly, we're going to talk to you about the great female country singers, or some of them, and we're going to hear clips from an audio interview with the legendary Guy Clark, whom you knew well. Tell us how you got into country music in the first place, if you'd be so kind. Sure. A very unlikely path. I was a championship golfer, and when you live in Cleveland, Ohio, the golf pros tend to come from Kentucky and West Virginia. 
I don't know why that is. <laughs> and when you're an underage kid with sort of mm, sketchy parenting, you can sneak out of the house with the bad golf pros. And if you want to go to bars where the bands are, they want to go hear country music. So I'm going to the University of Miami. I'm smart enough to know from my time in radio that you're only as good as your real life credit. Like no one cares about the college paper, or the college radio station. So I was trying to write for the Miami Herald who had rejected my rock clips, my pop clips, my punk clips, my black clips. And there was a poker game and someone said that little girl at the University of Miami actually knows country music. And I knew <laughs> just enough to bluff my way through the interview. And so it began and it was the age of kind of Lothario dudes in members only jackets with backcomb chest hair. It was awful. <laughs> it was awful. What year was that? Can we pinpoint that era? <laughs> that would be so aging me, but I will give you some, some classic <laughs> names. T.G. Shepard, Johnny Lee, Mickey Gilly, Earl Thomas Conley, Lee Greenwood. Okay. <laughs> Lothario <laughs> dudes indeed. Um, Back home's so, chest hair. That's the thing that's absolutely riveted me. <laughs> oh, it's so fluffy. All the better to like puff up your gold nugget jewelry. <laughs> you know, and I was living in a dorm and these guys would call and my sweet mates would be like, oh, you know, because they all, they, there was always an invitation to dinner. Right. Right. You know. Okay. Not yes. said. Dinner. <laughs> How much country stuff did you write for the Miami Herald? No, I mean, I was predominantly their country music writer. And yeah. when the guy called me and I'm like, it's the Miami Herald. What are you talking about? And he said, well, let's see, Homestead or statewide paper. And back then they did a million papers a day. So when you're thinking about Tallahassee, Jacksonville, Orlando, Okeechobee, like Leanne Womack says it's a more redneck state than Texas. So it turned out I was a really vital beat. And I just had to start learning as fast as I could. And there were some really amazing moments. John Marlowe, rest in peace, was the Miami news writer. And I'd sometimes get these calls and he'd be like, I'll meet you in the stairwell. And he would thrust records at me that he felt it was very critical <laughs> that I listen and digest. He also wore members only jackets, but he was a very skinny man and his was black. And he always had a striped t-shirt underneath his. <laughs> and um, into my hands one day, he thrust... Gilda Palace of Sin, both Burritos records, and the GP album. That's fantastic. Wow, pretty good history lesson right there. Yeah, and I mean, he was always he was very generous that way because he's like, you get it. And I don't know that anybody gets what you are, so just stick with me. Stick with me, kid. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay, sure. And it was, it was great. I mean, I knew Emmy Lou. I went into a record store called Record Theater, and it was the poster for Quarter Moon where she has the peacock feathers in her hair. And I was yeah. like, Ooh, what is that? I, I want that. And I always loved country. I mean, I always loved women singers and mm -hmm. artists. And I took it home and, like, was it folk? Was it singer-songwriter? Does this have anything to do with Linda Ronstadt? You know, that was back when I think we were more agnostic about what we listened to. Yes. Yeah. 
Do we know if Ron DeSantis is a fan of country music? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, he was just on stage with Luke Bryan. They say because it was part of the charity to aid the storm victims. And, you know, most people will jump up on stage if they think they can get to voters. But, you know, what does he listen to? I'm not listening. I'm not checking his playlist. <laughs> <laughs> what is your take on country music as it is at the moment? Because I remember watching the CMAs last year and being slightly, slightly depressed that there was a lot of a kind of really relentless backbeat that had very little flexibility to it. And, and a kind of, it felt so pop some of it, that it was barely, I could barely see it as country music. I think it's, I think it's three things. And I think it comes down to definitions. A lot of what we think of as Americana is what probably all of us think of as country music, Mm -hmm. right? Patti Loveless was there last night. She sang, you'll never leave Harlan alive with Chris Stapleton. And it literally, I could feel America's TV sets exploding. when songwriters started writing with 808s and stuff, we fell down that rabbit hole. I don't think we've clawed our way out. Mm-hmm, and I right. think that there's more money in running the table as a writer-producer. And I hate to say it's about the money, but but I do think last night Lainey Wilson won too, Cody Johnson won too, and Luke Combs, who... I've got a friend that goes, oh, yeah, the fat kid with the solo cup. (laughs) To his credit, when he had that breakout record, the first year, nine or 11 people got their first number one record Mm. because he was a fat kid. Nobody on Music Row was necessarily rushing to write with him. So he developed his own vocabulary, his own crew. But as long as there's Big Loud and Craig Wiseman and... Joey Moy, you will have Morgan Wallen, you will have Ernest. You now have two Florida Georgia lines. Through the beauty of mitosis, they split, and now we have solo (laughs) careers. But, you know, it felt really good last night to see who won because those were country artists. And I think it may be a little slower to retake the bacon, than when Randy Travis and Ricky Skaggs and the Judds mm-hmm. blew up yeah. all those years ago. Yeah. But the two things about country, and one of them is going to be controversial, these are people that really are their own ecosystem. Country fans, while they listen to everything, they are their own mm-hmm. group of yeah. people. This idea that, oh, no, we're all these other things, I always feel like, and I used to do homework on people's buses, you know, I can't tell you how many times Johnny Anderson or the Forrester sisters, you know, would see me dragging the bag and they'd be like, do you have like a test? Yes. <laughs> do you, would you like to study in our state room? Yes. You know, I mean, it was really, I was almost famous, the hillbilly version. Um, it's, I mean, it's funny, but it's true. And so, you know, I 
two things that happened. I came to embrace the fact that these were their own group of people and mm-hmm. they did not give a flying damn about anything else. You know, no one ever yeah. asked me about Madonna at one of those shows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they were really proud, awesome, autonomous people. Like they were great. I did, you know, Hank Jr.'s fans were rough, but other than that. <laughs> and the other thing, my dad, my parents got a divorce and my dad fell off the wagon, which is kind of a country song. And I <laughs> went Sorry. down to check. My dad was hanging out at a bar west of Military Trail and that was considered dangerous back in the day. And, you know, I kind of sneak in and, and the barmaid doesn't like me. She can tell him I'm scoping. And when she and I finally got to where we were talking and she said, well, what, you know, what are you so worried about? I said, well, you know, my dad's not the tallest guy and he's, he was a Marine and these boys seem pretty tough. And if some guy, but he lips off to a waitress or grabs the way, my dad might step in and he'll leave in a body bag. And the lady said, look, anybody lays a hand on country, John. I'm like, John, <laughs> honest to God. They go, they're leaving here in a body bag. I mean, tough woman. And I'm like, oh, well, okay. And she's like, you really love your dad, don't you? I go, oh, my dad's like the greatest. It's my mom. He goes, yeah, she sounds like a piece of work. And I'm like, no, she's really bad. He should be sober. And she said, oh, honey, don't worry. You know, sometimes two of the boys will drive your dad home, like want to drive his car, want to follow in a truck. They go, they put him to bed. They walk your little dog, because I had a dog I couldn't take to college, and put baby Coors back in the house. And, you know, nothing's going to happen to your dad. And that was when I really developed this respect Mm -hmm. for the audience that had been so alien to a kid from Cleveland, Ohio. Sure, And once you get that, the fact that it's separate but different, you know, it just, it really set me up at the Herald to win. Mm-hmm. And when we do the RIP part, let me, like, I've got a great Alabama story with my editor at the Herald that really speaks to that gap about who we are, who those fans are, and how just because I love Elvis Costello, that doesn't make me any better. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's really things. difficult from here to pass all of that and, and to see. You know, the last few years of American politics, it's it's hard to, to listen to country music without thinking of all these contextual things. But but that's really interesting that you say that. And in defense of, of a lot of country music, not all of it, Toby Keith got an award two nights ago, you know, the boot in your ass guy. And, <laughs> you know, what people don't realize about Toby is he's a Democrat. Mm. Like, he's always been a Democrat. Like, he'll show up for the president because, as my dad said, win or lose, that is your president. Yeah. But I think there's always going to be one or two people that wants to grab the wing of Air Force One and look bigger or more important Mm -hmm. than they are. And they will cling to that to have a career long after they have a career. But I think a lot of artists in Nashville – and when I say that, I mean mainstream country music. Yeah. They know that they don't know enough to have an opinion. They're not going to use their platform to tell you what to do because they don't want to be wrong. It's not that they're yeah. cowards. They're not gutless bitches. They just, they haven't done the work. Yeah. 
And I have a lot of those sidebar conversations with people because I'm, I've been around so long that everybody knows me and everybody knows I only tell the truth and I'm not someone that says what you want to hear. So you like me, I don't care, but also that I work very hard to be measured and I have no problem with, I don't know. And so I make people feel safe to say, I don't know. Mm -hmm. And those, there are a lot of those conversations that go on. And of course, record company people are like, no, (laughs) don't do it. Don't do it. But you know, I also think that, that if you really are passionate and you've done your homework, who are Mm -hmm. we to say, you know, that is your first amendment, right? Yeah. And if you're so, you know, fired up about the commerce, do you guys know about the Brittany Aldean, Marin Morris scuffle? Did that make it across the water? Don't think so. Okay, well then let's just move on. But it was a lot of drama. <laughs> and it was but but the sad thing about the drama was it could have been such an amazing teaching moment, you know? And if you'd wrapped either side of it up in a little kindness, we could have maybe elevated the dialogue. But over here, I think now it's more fun to punch down and say something snarky. And, you know, all props to Marin, maybe the snark comment of the year, whether you're on her side or not on her side, insurrectionist Barbie is pretty genius. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, damn, girl, I wish you had said something to elevate everyone, but good one. Yeah. Super (laughs) good one. That's very funny. Yeah. Listen, we need to talk about the history Music? of, we- of yeah. women in country, particularly because of your amazing book, Woman Walk the Line. The first of the pieces that we're featuring on the homepage, which speaks to this theme, is a piece Sean O'Hagan wrote in The Observer a little over 10 years ago. When this record came out, listeners obviously can't see this, but I don't know if you ever That's saw great, this, Holly. I've got that yeah. compilation. Okay. It's amazing. Country Soul Sisters, Women in Country Music, 1952 to 1978. Uh, some amazing stuff on there. And Sean did a piece around that box set, and he talked to Gene Shepard and also Bonnie Guitar. And Gene, Nashville veteran, told him that uh, I was a young girl with big ambitions and I was standing at the Ryman Auditorium and Hank Williams was there. I told him I was going to be a country singer. He said, oh yeah, well, there ain't much room in this business for a woman country singer. That's Hank Williams. Yeah. Now, I mean, my sort of reaction to reading that was when I think about country music and the pantheon of country music, I think about just as many female artists as male artists, almost like more. I mean, maybe that's a perspective from this side of the pond. But so in the context of that memory of Gene Shepard's talking to Hank, I mean, how hard do you think it's been for women country singers? And if it has been really hard, how do you explain just how so many of the really iconic country stars have been female? I was really lucky because I was here for the 80s and the 90s, which was the super golden age of women in country music and the early 2000s. It's a sexist town. Mm-hmm. Misogyny is rampant. But the gift of that is if people don't take you seriously, you can go do whatever the hell you want. And I think we there are way more iconic women than men. And I would take it to three things. They could go do their own thing because... No one was looking at them to make bank. 
And by the time they did, it was too late. The bitches had figured their stuff out. (laughs) (laughs) Fashion, I think women's fashion is always more interesting. And I think whether we're talking about, you know, some of that really fondante stuff of the 70s, we saw a lot of pleated chiffon, yo, and ringlets. (laughs) Don't forget your ringlets. But, you know, coming out of the cowgirl outfits, which were mm-hmm. so darling, and you've done Holly George Warren. And, I mean, you know, she's really exemplary unpacking all of that. But then you also had the Sammy Smiths, you know, and the Tanya Tucker who was dressing mm-hmm. like Elvis. And, you know, the the crotch-grabbing pants. You know, I think of Sammy Smith. It was kind of like, oh, <laughs> you know. And my dad would be like, oh God, do you get it? I'm like, get what? Get what? No, I don't know what you're talking about. And then you had like Emmy Lou, part of my gateway to country through her was wearing piano shawls as a top, wearing the boots to the knee. I mean, she could have been Jane Birkin's Maryland, Washington, DC bluegrass sister. So (laughs) you had all these different looks and that sort of, you know, Loretta in the dyed wedding dresses. Right. So that also put the girls out front. And then the third thing is, and I'm not saying it's, it was quite as bad as it is now, but men have a few basic tropes, chasing skirts, getting drunk, getting their heart broken and being mad about it, getting their heart broken and going back and getting drunk and <laughs> pledging pseudo all the time. Amour, you know, I will love you forever. That's pretty much the dude's lexicon of country. <laughs> Right. I mean, they have story songs and there's other stuff, but those are really women write about the entire emotional rainbow. Right. And if you think even about just Dolly, like dumb blonde, which she didn't write, but I mean, if there's ever been a wink and a hip check, right. And just because I'm a woman or Loretta, you know, half the song, she's going to hit you in the head with a firing pan. And the other half, she's going to take your clothes off and do really bad things to you. (laughs) (laughs) And then hit you in the head with a frying pan. Um, Well, no, no, but I mean, (laughs) she was very, she doesn't get enough credit. She was really sexually frank at a time when people weren't. Mini skirts, hot pants, and a few little fancy frills. Yeah, I'm making it all those years since I've got the pill. Now, I mean, there's, there's one other interesting dynamic is that a lot of women emerged almost as a part of a duet pairing with men. I mean, you know, think of, of well, particularly Dolly Parton and Porter Wagoner. And she had to get out from under Porter Wagoner to make, make her way. And he was really angry about it. I mean, I, oh. I, mm-hmm. I, I've been reading people. I mean, one of our writers, Jean Guerrero, who wrote The Great Speckled Burden, Banter was the remarkable thing as a hippie who really liked country music in like 1969. And he'd go and interview the pair of them, and Porter was really uncomfortable with Dolly having her voice. Right. No, it's very sexist. Yeah. The fact that I've been here as long as I have working and, and theoretically thriving, people don't understand how often you just go, yeah, okay, fine. Because yeah. you have to make the decision. Is this yeah. about getting where I need to go? Or is this about, hey, buddy. 
And I'm an artist advocate. I'm not really a publicist anymore. I still do artist development. Mm-hmm. I still do marketing and messaging consulting because I just can't take the front lines of PR. It's, sure. it's, it's too depressing. But there is this idea of my business cards used to say midwifer of dreams. I love music and I love the people who make it. And I think it's a very hard channel to navigate. Basically, we're going to cut you with razors, drop you in this like very twisty channel and then let the sharks out. Okay. See ya. Good luck. Have some hits. <laughs> and you know, they come out looking like a cat that's been in a really bad fight. And I always say, you're going to get out in one piece and we're going to try to protect your music as best as we can. And I think I've done a pretty good job of it, you know, mm-hmm. and that's because I know when to just shut up and go fine. Yeah. Good deal. And I think a lot of the women do. I think I've seen some women not get what they deserve. Yeah. 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 You know, Miranda Lambert mm-hmm. has never won a CMA entertainer of the year. I'm not sure if Carrie has. It's been 11 years though, since a woman has won CMA entertainer of the year. Wow. Seriously. Are there many women in the industry side in Nashville on the record companies and so on and so forth and management? It, it, do women have any presence? Cause uh, Barney and I were talking about, the women and Lorraine Altman of lunch yesterday about the women who were part of the independent R and B labels in, in like um, Estelle Axton and so on and so forth. Oh, do women occupy those sorts of roles in the industry? Well, it's interesting because when I got to town, women ran the business. Oh, BMI, ASCAP, CMA, Maggie Cavender with the Nashville Songwriters Association, Donna Hilly at Sony Tree, Evelyn Shriver, who was a publicist, but really had a very strong hand in Randy Travis and mm-hmm. Ricky Van Shelton, and then really recognized the power of Tammy Wynette and George Jones and some of those those elder statesmen. Right. Bonnie Garner, who was an A&R person at Sony, who was part of Mark Rothbaum's team with Willie, uh, Marty Stewart, Lou Harris, Mary Martin, who had managed the band, and, and Leonard Cohen. Mm-hmm. She ended up at A&R at RCA, signed Vince mm-hmm. Gill, I believe had a hand in getting Rodney Crowell. Situated in Nashville, Rodney was obviously signed out of Warner LA. Sure. Martha Sharp and Paige Rowden at Warner Brothers. So, And women really had power, but then people realized they had power and there was money. Mm-hmm. So the girls started getting shoved to the side again. We're starting to have another renaissance of women managers. Mm-hmm. And Randy Goodman at Sony has been pretty aggressive about promoting women. John Esposito, who just left Warner Brothers, he's put some women in power. But the problem now is many of our executives, they think that Garth Brooks or Rascal Flats is the source. And because of Google, like I don't exist. If if you come to journalism and you only know Google, I don't exist. And y'all are old enough that you remember I was everywhere. <laughs> I was everywhere <laughs> writing about everyone. And most of my work doesn't, you can't find it. So you find a fair amount on Rock's back page. Yes. If it wasn't for you guys, I wouldn't exist. <laughs> Holly, one of the things that I love about Woman Walk the Line is that it stretches from Mother Mabel Carter to Taylor Swift. 
Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to to sort of circle back to Martin's earlier point, beginning of the conversation, just to touch on Taylor Swift. You know, we mm. are what like two weeks after she had every top ten single in the charts, and obviously she's pretty much the biggest female solo artist on the planet now. We're featuring, along with the Sean Hagen article I mentioned earlier, there's a piece from 2009 by Nick Hasted called Far From The Old Country Music. And it's it, it looks at an act called Sugarland, but it also looks at, at Taylor Swift. And mm-hmm. the Stanford says, artists who've crossed over so far, they are virtually mainstream, country artists that are virtually mainstream. How did we get to a point where Taylor Swift's records are really not, not kind of rooted in country at all anymore or are they what is she i mean how did how did this phenomenon happen well i think it's funny because what everybody forgets is post garth a lot of people got jobs that didn't necessarily have a burning passion for country music there were a and r people who would go i don't listen to that crap in my car i listen to sting i'm thinking oh okay, there's a <laughs> blazing endorsement <laughs> <laughs> You know, when I would look at Jack Lehmeyer, who ran promotion at Epic and be just like, down, girl. I'm like, all right. But, I mean, you know, this is and, – and Patty Loveless was one of his. I said, this is this is the anti-Patty, and it will eventually – whereas Mary Chapin Carpenter, brown-educated, Sean Colvin's best friend, but she came out of that more bluegrassy, folky thing that Emmy did. So yeah. in some ways, she was a more valid traveler through the format. So that was the first thing that happened. And in Taylor's case, you know, what everybody forgets, and it's a double blind, she was a little girl, right? Yeah. She yeah. wrote incredibly yeah. old, but she was mm-hmm. a little girl. Yeah. And she listened to James Taylor records. Well, she's not going to go get in the Olivia Rodrigo hot rod doing that. And, you know, the family, I think, felt like it was safe for her to be in Nashville. So they brought her down. She went door to door. Hi, I'm Taylor. Can I give you my tape? And Scott Borchetta was looking to found a label. Mm. And Scott Swift was an investment banker. They weren't Christmas tree farmers. <laughs> And he helped raise the money for Big Machine. Mm. You know, all that stuff gets put out with the wash. And like Clint Black got his deal at RCA with Bill Ham coming in with a matching million-dollar marketing fund. But the innocence of her, I think, was so true that that did make it country. And the fact that she was so vulnerable – it did make it country. And the fact that like Loretta, she'd scratch her eyes out, right? That made it country. But then she grew up and, you know, this whole what is Taylor debate. Well, of course she's going to evolve to something else. I, you know, I mean, I was lucky. The first record I bought was Tapestry by Carole King, but the runner up was the Partridge Family Songbook. Right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Got God forbid. And so I think that she's evolved and she's found new collaborators and she's suffered at some, you know, the double blind of Taylor is all the creepy Humbert Humbert champions that she had. Oh, Taylor, she's great. It's like, no, she's like a 15 year old girl and you're creepy. You just lift her (laughs) up. Absolutely. Would you, would you say that she brought, she brought that country songwriting where, where the story or the kind of the reality of the song, Took oh, that into the pop mainstream? 
I think she also brought the real emotional transparency. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, fun, she's almost willing to be vulnerable and willing to show it, but also tough at the same time. Well, she's embarrassingly honest. You know, yeah. they're cringy moments. And that's why when men write about her, I just laugh because I think you don't have a clue what she's mm-hmm. talking about. You know, you're the problem she's writing about. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then the other thing that happened to her, Bob Lafsitz, was me. You know, and I would see people that just couldn't give it over to her. And it's like, to quote the neck, but the little girls understand. Mm-hmm. And she's very talented. She's always mm-hmm. been very talented. And like my gag with her, because someone says, you know, you always get the record. Yeah, because she knows I'm a neurotic song nerd raised on John Prine and Guy Clark and Rodney Crowell and Townsend and Zant and, you know, John Hyatt and... Hank Williams and going back and she knows that's the prism I look at. And not only have I never met her, I've never tweeted at her. Right. I don't care that, Oh, Tay Tay, let's get our picture. Cause that's not my job. Mm -hmm. And as a woman, you know, the woman walked the line thing, my feminism is we, not me. I think it's good for her to have, Older women who are emotionally present sifting the work. Right. Yes. Because it's harder in this punch down social media world to really understand what your emotions are and to be able to access them without fear that the crappy little girl down the street isn't going to use it as a tourniquet later. Right. So... Mm. You know, not the take on Taylor Swift you were probably expecting. It's just fun. I don't know. I, know. I think it's great. I think it's, it, it's a great take. But you don't know what you don't know. Someday I'll be living in a big old city. And all you're ever going to be is me. I mean, I suppose certainly Martin and I went through a long stretch of being very keen on country music. In a sense, what Martin's original questions was related to is at some point around what I call the Hat Act, is it sort of left us and it didn't seem accessible to people who weren't from the country music listening American environment. I mean, do, do you think that's a fair thing to say that country music isn't really country music any, well, in a sonic think, sense anymore? I think all sonics evolve. Yes, yeah, sure. right. Yeah. The Shirelles don't sound like Lana Del Rey. Yeah, of course. Let's pick a yeah. more reasonable paradigm. Yeah, yeah. Certainly not Megan Thee Stallion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the other piece of it is, I think we've had three really throbbing waves of dudes: the right. Cat in the Hat, when mm-hmm. John Michael Montgomery, Tracy Lawrence, Tim McGraw. Mm-hmm. Sort of Billy Ray, although he didn't wear a hat. And then all the labels went on these crazy signing binges. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it was much easier for dudes. And then it sort of died out. Right. And then I always tease Kenny about bro country is the worst of everything he is. Right. Like they never plugged into his heart, the emotional reality, the fact that he took his hands and really reached into what it meant to come of age in a small town. Right. And he did what he did. And obviously, you know, you can trust me. I've worked with him for 21 years. 
And the thing that really made me want to work with him was, and I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, where people didn't see us either. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. We were the mistake on the lake. Our river caught on fire. Our factories closed. <laughs> Why, you know, ugh, Cleveland. And our sports team sucked. So, you know, but we had a big heart. And he saw that the kid in Wyoming or Maine, like, mm. remember, his yeah. first big stadium market was Boston. Right. All those people who weren't blowing it up in the club, but were living these really dignified, awesome, fun-loving, raise-your-kids lives, no one was speaking for them. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, was his pivot, was he came out of that wave of Tim McGraw and knew he needed something more than, she thinks my tractor's sexy. <laughs> you know. And I asked him, at our first meeting, I said, what? The, what was? And he said, well, I didn't cut it for you. You know, (laughs) but I knew three guys I went to school with who were going to fall out. And that was one of those songs. And he said, and by the way, Holly, our first meeting was very funny and a little bit fractious and very truth telling. Uh, He said, I never cut another song like it. Right. I knew it could kill my career. I also knew it could break me wide open. And then I had to figure out what to do with it. And one of the things he did with it was young which was the rallying cry for all the kids who had been like him. Right. Looking back on how they got there, not blowing it up in the club. Mm-hmm. And he has very much, he was signed to Acuff Rose, he, which was Hank Sr.'s company. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Phil Walden signed him to Capricorn. People right. forget that. Yeah, yeah. Phil mm-hmm. let him go because he realized what it was going to cost to get him on country radio. It was going to be hiring an entire other promotion team. And he let... Alabama's manager, take him to Jogalani, who just went into the Hall of Fame. Right. And, you know, to his point, I cut what I had to cut to get on the radio. I always knew there was something more. And as a kid who wrote with Whitey Schaefer and Dean Dillon and God, I'm blanking, but all the really old guard guys, mm-hmm. he knows what those songs are talking right. about country and and he brought it forward unfortunately people thought it was about beaches bonfires beer parties mm-hmm. and daisy dukes and pickup trucks and that is the antithesis of what he's really doing but for people that weren't looking beyond the surface bro country was born right <laughs> right i love the bro I'm country the, i think it's more country. Country. Yeah. <laughs> even kind of crazy about my phone On the topic of voices that, you know, maybe hadn't been heard that much in country and contemporary country more generally, I'd be really interested to hear what you make of Lil Nas X's position within the kind of country or outside the country space in the last few years. Well, I love that question. And, you know, step up, step back. There are always outsiders that recognize they can get a lot of attention by hang gliding into country. If you want to talk about how country's lost its roots or its soul, Old Town Road was kind of that, right? It was a very trap recording and it felt super good. I mean, there was nothing slinkier than Old Town Road. Yeah, yeah. Right? But 
do we want to hear him do Rocky Top or do we want to hear him do Industry Baby, right? And I think Billy Ray has always been super canny. He was on the biggest record of the 90s for country music, right? Achy Breaky Heart. The kid is looking to legitimize, right, and do country. He has a manager who understands how to work all the metrics and all the streaming Mm -hmm. modalities. Yeah. Same people are doing Zach Bryan now. And they want to legitimize him. And if anybody knows how to hang glide through that stuff, it's Billy Ray. And I think I chased them for a day for a story. And I very much felt, and I, I know Billy Ray, we had a phone relationship for a while where we would just talk about stuff. Watching him, watching Lil Nas X, you could feel the empathy. Hmm. And almost the protectiveness of, whoa, little buddy, you don't even know. And <laughs> I don't know why Lil Nas X took the time away before he came back. But I think there might be some counseling that came there. Like, mm. you need to really solidify who you are. And But, you know, you look at you look at all the fragmented stuff. You know, I have people say to me, I love Sturgill. I love Tyler. I love Margo. We just had a Loretta Lynn tribute where Margot Price slayed. Slate was the best thing on it. But sonically, how do you play her between Luke Bryan and Jason Aldean? Yeah. And that's part of the problem is it's like it's great for Sergio DeBus get to CMA Awards and get $3 and give us the finger or Jason Isbell to talk about what's wrong with the format. But the fact is he's not even in that mainstream country game. Mm-hmm. And so that's a little disingenuous and the media facilitates it. And, you know, my thing is before Morgan Wallen was a bad boy and we didn't like him anymore, I interviewed him a lot because of how big, again, that whiskey glasses situation, right? And up down. And we used to talk a lot about Keith Whitley, even though he's a big hip hop fan. And one of the things that was sort of interesting is he had the recognition about he wanted to be in country music and he knew that there were certain things he had to say and do in terms of his music, not in terms of obviously what he says and does was not consistent. But the other thing was if he could figure out the sonics and the way things fit, he could do things that were outside the pony ring, one of them being cover me up. And when it was floating around YouTube, I'd interview him. I said, so, you know, Jason Isabel, what the hell? And he said, you know, somebody gave me um, the Southeast record. And that song kind of, I loved it. And I used to warm up to it. And people would stop by my dressing room because I was on all these tours and go, did you write that? Did you write that? And he'd be like, oh, no, you know. And he goes, it finally occurred to me, nobody that I was working with knew the album, knew Jason Isabel, or had a clue. Sure. So that's, I think that is so illustrative of the problem of our church and state situation in greater (laughs) Nashville. And then, you know, ironically, that is one of his biggest songs. So it can be compatible, Jasper, to your point. It can be compatible, but it's just you sort of have to be willing to understand that if you sonically can't compete, it's hard 
to be in the conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you have a vision that really exists more outside the pony ring, it's sort of hard to stay in the conversation. Yeah, I'm going to take my horse to the old town road. I'm going to ride till I can't no more. I'm going to take my horse to the old town road. I'm going to ride till I can't no more. I got the horses in the back. Horse stock is attached. Head is mad at black. Got the boots black and match. Riding on a horse. Holly, can we talk about Guy Clark for a moment? I think you mentioned, you certainly mentioned Towns Van Zandt. And there was a list that you gave yeah. just, just maybe about Guy 10 was minutes one, Guy ago. was on Guy, the list. Guy was on the <laughs> list. So I figured Uncle he Guy. would be. So one of the pieces by you that we're, that we're featuring is this really beautiful yes, piece you wrote piece. for the, the, the amazing Bitter Southerner site in 2016 when, yeah. when Guy died. And it's, it's just rather wonderful. I love and this piece. It's great. It's so personal. You knew him well. So we thought we would dig out this audio interview with Guy from 1986. So I'm going to hand over to Mark just to tell us briefly about that. Yeah, it's, it's John Tobler interviewing him. For one of the fanzines that John used to write for, Omaha Rainbow, one of those sorts of magazines. First of all, talking about people covering his songs. And actually, let's listen to the first clip because he, he talks about not regarding himself as a country singer, but as a songwriter. Yeah. And also writing for himself rather than for other people and other people incidentally covering his songs. Though he freely admits in the interview that that's where he earns his living is from other people's covers, having yeah. other people having hits. Let's have a listen to this, Jasper. Do you regard yourself as a country musician? No, not really. I'm a songwriter. I write about, I have all kinds of influences in my music, and, you, and country happens to be one of them. But I think that was always one of the problems with the record companies that I had, was, were with, was with. Uh, <laughs> you know, you try to put what I do in a country bin mm. of records, and it just, yes. you know, doesn't belong there. Doesn't belong in rock and roll. Doesn't belong a lot of places, you know. I, I don't know what to call it. I mean, I'm a songwriter. I tell stories. And however, whatever form that happens to take is what it is. And it's not easily categorized. And consequently, I don't really fit into their marketing schemes. Me and this old man was like desperados waiting for a train. Like desperados waiting for dreams. <laughs> I mean, that, that's like Rye reference to record companies. He had effectively just been dropped by Warners, I think, quite shortly before this interview took place. He talks about, actually very interestingly, about collaborating with his wife, who's a songwriter in her own right, Susanna Clark. Uh, they don't actually write much together. They're always aware of what each other's doing. Imagine that whole household. One of us is in one room writing a song. The other's in another room writing a song. That must have been an interesting process. Yes. <laughs> he talks about loving Texas but living in Nashville, not often visiting England. His, his musical roots not being country as such, but more folk and blues, old-style blues, old folk blues and folk. He talks quite a lot about the, writer, the process of songwriting. Let's have a listen to this next clip. Hard work, and uh, hard work isn't really easy, but there's a certain 
sense of accomplishment that you get when you get through, right? And that keeps you going. I couldn't make myself do it if I didn't want to do it. If there wasn't some enjoyment to it. But it is, but it is hard, you know? Yes, I can believe it. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I write, just write words. So. Yeah, and, it, and I, I find that I, I'm only good for two or three hours a day at most. Because really? it's a real, I mean, mm. you're really trying to drag up some really real emotions, some real feelings that you're trying to elaborate on and deal with. And uh, I mean, you just can't, can't do that <laughs> eight mm. hours a day, you know. Standing in the rain, and the rain goes. He's waiting on some cowboy lasso to ride and take her home. Which is, I, th- I think, a, a very good point and actually applies to most of us. Someone recently did a study and said that actually all people are really incapable of work producing good work for four hours a day. And the rest of the time, you're just filling in the space. Um, uh, well, I feel better. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. That's why I love that clip so much. It's great. He talks you know, about his relationship with language and the, the novels he writes. And this is a literate, you know, interesting man. So it's good. I mean... So John Tobler's a very good interviewer. He's slightly off kind of pieced here in places. It's, it's, it, I, I think that, that Guy is quite a recalcitrant person to interview, and that, that it's, which, which makes life a little bit difficult. But it, it, he is, he's an interesting man. Yeah, anyway, so that, there we go. It's, 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 it's well worth listening to. Holly, when I listened to the second clip, I was reminded of this bit in your piece, which was called Randall Knives, Desperados and Homegrown tomatoes where you talk about finding the courage to ask guy to write with you and you, the second time around you have this this song title in your mind which i love which is greyhounds are for leaving um, <laughs> but listening to listening to guy talk about how hard it is to write and you know if you're really writing a song you are you are trying to pull up some real emotions they're, they're, nothing else creates great songs how did it feel listening to his voice just done I mean, you know, I'm in some ways the worst one to ask because, you know, I had two uncles. I had Uncle John and I had Uncle Guy. And I mean, you can see I've got tears in my eyes because I miss him, you know. And Mm. his greatest, so many greatest gifts. I remember when we had the number one party for Batter's Memory and he was going through cancer treatment. And he told me he was coming. And, you know, to have Guy Clark walk in a room, it's like baller. And he didn't show up. And I didn't think anything about it because he might have gotten writing or Susanna might have been sick or, you know, I never expect anything from anyone ever because this is show business and Mm -hmm. it's more business than show. So when I got home, there was a voicemail and he said, hey, baby, I have my, I have my jacket with me and I was going to come and the chemo, it just, it just hit me bad today. And I sat in the parking garage and I was going to be there and I just... I hope you're okay. I didn't make it. Oh, hello. Mm. Uh, you know, and that's, wow. and the thing about Guy and in 86, because I also interviewed him for the first time in 86, he was on the verge of putting out, or he had just put out the Old Friends album. Mm-hmm. And it was Sugar Hill, and they let him make music on his own terms. And he was going through this very big liberational phase. And he did very exacting, very good work. But, I think as time went on, 
his standards went up and up and up. So what you're hearing there is the beginning of Cooking the Frog. Mm-hmm. But the thing that also happened is he started wanting to write higher and higher and higher quality songs. I mean, if you listen to Hemingway's Whiskey or Magdalene, it's... Yeah, there's some fantastic <gasps> songs. Rain in Durango. Exactly. It's wonderful, yeah. But what's the two things that were interesting that as his standards went up and he became more exacting, he was always a romantic, always. And that also flowered in some pretty interesting ways. And his kindness and generosity also flourished. You know, uh, the thing about, and he'd probably kill me for saying it, but Hemingway's whiskey, one of the writers came in, he was a brand new writer, came with someone he knew and had the title. And they left and he sat there, he said, I sat there and just looked at the title, looked at the title. And like two days later, got up and rewrote the entire song. Mm-hmm. So what we know as Hemingway's Whiskey is basically a Guy Clark song. Right. But he kept the writers on there. Mm-hmm. And didn't even call and go, you know, I kind of know right. what you're doing, but I had this other idea. And I hope you don't mind. Right. That mm-hmm. was Guy's heart. And when we wrote Greyhounds Are For Leaving turned into To Watch Maria Dance, which when NPR did the best of the dual tone years, that was the song that they used. Mm. And when I got the demo, a friend of mine said, no, he recorded this for forever. This isn't a demo. And I was like, well, I don't know. I mean, it's me and Guy and like he's Uncle Guy and he's probably just being nice. But one of the things I can tell you about the process was we had started an absolute dog of a song because he didn't want to hurt my feelings. And I had put a title out there that it was personal. And he just, he goes, I can't write that with you. And I'm like, okay, sorry. (laughs) You know, it's like I handed him a baby rattler, which I think I say in the piece. But, (laughs) you know, when I said, well, how do you know when a song's done? And he goes, well, you know, you don't. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, I've had pieces of songs for years. And, you know, when it's meant to be born, it'll be born. And I said, okay, I'll make this easy. Because he was just so kind, he didn't want to hurt me. I said, this is a piece of crap. Your name isn't going on it. Let's start over. And he just laughed. He went, okay, Holly, whatever you say. <laughs> you know, and I gave him my notebook. And I said, well, this is the, this is the reason I called Ben Vaughn and said, will you ask Guy? Because he couldn't say no to me. I knew that. And he needed to be able to say, I don't want to write with her. Are you kidding? <laughs> you know, one hit does not a songwriter make. And it had Greyhounds are for leaving when all you got is gone. Morning broke like a dozen eggs. And he went, scattered across the lawn, let's do this. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and he was very exacting. And he would sit even for a single word. Right. And that's, I mean, with Better as a Memory, it was the same thing. You know, I don't want to be that mistake. And my co-writer's like, don't you make that mistake. And I'm like, you're not telling the girl what to do. <laughs> Sit down, Travis. <laughs> <laughs> and, but I mean, I sort of, because I'm a big geek and a reader and a writer, I had that, but seeing the way he had it, mm. it really made words holier. Yeah. He mm. talks in the interview about always wanting to learn more and more. And that's a sense that you really get reading your piece about him and hearing what you're saying is that he was always just trying to write better songs and honing that craft constantly which is an amazing thing to you know not just rest on your laurels when you've when mm-hmm. you've already written you know so many good songs and then wanting to write even better songs i think it's wonderful our greyhounds are for leaving 
When all you've got is gone Morning broke like a dozen eggs Shattered on the lawn One of the pieces that we've added this week is actually from last year, Jeffrey Himes, an American songwriter, writing about the, the documentary Without Getting Killed or Caught, mm-hmm. which I ha- confess I haven't seen, but but I am at sort of one remove fascinated by the story of Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt and Susanna, as I'm sure, I mean, Martin, I think you, you're interested mm-hmm. in these guys too. It is, yeah, it's very, you. you talk about ro- ro- romantic, you called Guy romantic. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a very sort of romantic story of a very creative kind of menage a trois. And then within that orbit, of course, Steve Earle, Lyle Lovett, Rodney, et cetera, et cetera. Emmy. Yeah, Rod- Rod- Rodney Crowell. Yeah. And you- exactly. I mean, it's, it is absolutely, it is fascinating. There's a combination of damage and literacy and, and real artistry, you know, coming out of Texas of all places, really. It's, I find it absolutely fascinating. I need to see this film. What did you think of it? This is going to sound like a cop-out, but having been around it, having been the kid's sister, right? Mm-hmm. Almost famous. Mm-hmm. Here we go again. When you watch all that complication going on, you know, it's a lot like that scene with William Miller where, you know, Penny Lane and Russell Hammond are shaking hands and he's like, oh, uh, uh, Because uh, you can tell how intense and how much pain people are in and how much passion they're in and how much you know how stoic it is i mean Mm. rodney has a song that basically says susanna started dying the day towns passed you know and i think that they were all trying to one-up each other they all had ridiculous you know towns blues or zippity doodah susanna's like well that isn't shit you know, and, and I'll, I'll show you. It was so charged. And I sometimes wonder, because I fell in love with John when I was 12, with Angel from Montgomery. When I found out a man wrote that song, it was like, boing. Mm-hmm. And that was a song that told me the spaceship wasn't coming to get me. Like, I couldn't believe my parents were, what, these people? No, no. I shouldn't have played <laughs> with the handle on the spaceship. And then <laughs> that song sounded a lot like my house. And I'm like, oh. Damn. So I was very pre-qualified to love songwriters. And when I started writing for the Herald, when I would see credits, I would then repel backwards. That's how I fill in all my missing knowledge. And I think I found Guy from maybe Highway 40 Blues because Emmy hadn't cut his stuff. And I thought he and Susanna were brother and sister. Wow. I also thought Rodney Crowell was like 50, which, you know, when you're 20, 50 is old. And I thought (laughs) when he was, because he wrote those songs, right? The moments of pleasure never do last. They're gone like a suitcase full of your past. Long gone and in a hurry. Like a kid doesn't write that. He produces Roseanne, obviously a favor to her old man, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. of course. (laughs) And I was playing golf with Vince Gill. I was 17 years old and I thought I was hustling him, not knowing what a good golfer he was down in Florida. (laughs) I was a senior in high school and he hits a 300 down the center of the fairway at Inverary. And I'm like, I'm doomed. (laughs) And we played golf for a week because he didn't like sailing and that's what Pure Prairie League liked to do. And we played golf when the band went out and sailed. And 
I went up to Orlando. They were doing grad night. We played golf. as my last day ever with a famous person. And then I will return to the Midwest and I will marry someone and be a championship golfer. <laughs> you know, God. What are you doing about a bullet right? From a gun. But I was talking to Vince in the parking lot and I said, what are you working on? What are you working on? What are you going to do? And he said, he's playing on Bonnie Raitt's green light record, which we didn't know was that. And I said, oh, anything else? He says, well, I'm playing on a record, but you don't know who it is. And I said, try me. And he said, you don't know. And I said, no, try me. And he said, okay, Rodney Crowell. And I dropped like 15 song titles. Uh. And he goes, (laughs) jeez. And I said, what are you doing hanging out with an old guy like that? And he goes, old guy, he's my age. And I'm like, he's your age? And he goes, yeah, dumbass. Like, we're friends. And I'm like, so it's not Johnny Cash's buddy producing? He goes, they're married. We didn't have the internet back then, right? And they were minor figures in the Emmylou Harris orbit in the 80s. Yes. And I'm like, you're kidding me. And he says, no. So fast forward, I go to Rollins for a year. My golf scholarship was rescinded because I got hurt. I walk into this little tiny record store because indie record stores rule. And there on the wall is a picture from the Rodney Crowell album of him in a white T-shirt, a black, thin-cut kind of new wave blazer jeans and that Farrah Fawcett hair. And I'm like, (laughs) holy crap, he's hot. That's that old guy. Mm. I also love the idea of you playing golf with Vince Gill. That's just brilliant. (laughs) Such an image. Yeah. No, he saved my life. And Uh. he didn't know. I mean, we didn't know. And the last, you know, the last I'm like, oh, goodbye, famous person. And, And no, it was, well, he was still, I was still, cutting school to go get him and go play golf. I was taking him back to the hotel and I said, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. I'll give my scholarship back. I think like they're going to redshirt me for a year, but I've screwed my hand up pretty bad. And he said, you should write about music. Yeah. And I'm like, you're crazy. And he goes, no, I, I talked to people. I had interviewed him for the St. Andrews bagpiper. He said, you're, you're good at this. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I mean, I gave a lot of interviews. All I'm doing is the other thing part of the handshake. And he goes, no, you're really good. You should do this. I talked to a lot of people. And I said, well, you are aware I'm a 17 year old girl. And he goes, yeah, I, I, I know. I said, and I look 12 and he goes, yeah, yeah, I know. And I said, yeah, but you didn't even take me seriously. And he said, Cameron Crow, Holly. And he had just published new kids. And I'm like, or, or fast times. Fast and times. I'm like, yes, I'm like, oh my God, Cameron Crowe did do it. And yeah. he was so young looking, he could go back to high school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so literally, and that was the gag. I was every band in America's kid's sister. I didn't want to be hit on. I didn't want to sleep with these people. You're gross, social diseases. <laughs> and so, you know, I look like Rachel Sweet on the back cover of Fool Around. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Holly, I think we are going to have to wrap up or do a part two in like next year. So much we'd like to talk to you about. It's been really fascinating speaking to such an an insider and hearing about all of that stuff. Didn't realize golf was going to play such a big part. (laughs) Um, We do have to say, before we say goodbye to you, we need to say goodbye to Colin Irwin, who has been 
an RBP contributor for many years, melody maker, mainstay, and one of the very best writers on folk music in the UK who, who died 10 days ago, and a really lovely human being by all accounts. We've added, we're featuring a couple of pieces of an interview he did, really wild interview he did with Tim Harden from 1974 for Melody Maker. You know, I mean, he, he interviewed a lot of these people. He did interviews with Sandy Denny, just really, you know, just great, talented, fucked up people. Yeah. Um, uh, but we're also adding a piece from much more recently, 2013, about the, I think called the new face of, of folk music. Never mind the bird law, the new face of folk music. And he's talking to people like Catherine Roberts and Anais Mitchell about, about you know, political folk songs um, at, at that time. So, yeah, we're really sad to to be saying goodbye to Colin mm. Irwin. We've also lost, over the last, again, 10 days, we've lost Mimi Parker of Low. So we're featuring a piece actually from 2000 that Ben Thompson wrote called The Lowdown on Low. And that's a really interesting piece about a really interesting group. And perhaps slightly less interesting, with no disrespect, Nazareth's Dan McCafferty, the, the, the voice on their version of the Everly Brothers' Love Hurts, I'll just quote briefly from this interview Tony Stewart did with Dan in the summer of 1973, which is like three years before Love Hurts. This is his quote. We love playing, basically. To do great musical movements on stage would bore me because I don't even like listening to that sort of thing. Though one band I do like is Yes, but that would be too much for our brains, man, to play like <laughs> Yes. They're a very odd band. We saw them a lot. Yeah, well, we saw so I was seeing the Greyhound in Fulham Palace yes. Road with you. Yeah. And that was like a, probably about six months before Love Hurts was a hit. Yeah, it was. Because they were still playing, yeah. they were playing pubs playing in pubs. London. Yeah. 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 They, yeah. They also did a bizarre version of Joni Mitchell's This Flight Tonight. Yes. yes. Remember that? Yeah. Yes. yes. Yeah. Which was also a hit, not as big a hit. Not but as I think big it might hit. have been a hit in, in America, but it was, a, it was a peculiar choice for a yes. hard rock band. <laughs> Scottish, Scottish hard rock band. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any views on Nazareth's version of Love Hurts, Holly? <laughs> I loved it. I mean, I think okay. that it was so painful. Right. The way they sang it. And all of a sudden, you know, macho, AOR, macho, AOR. And then this yeah. guy having a total meltdown. Yes. <laughs> it I was mean, it's kind like, of embarrassing. Cool. That's not. It's almost like the, the sort of uh, power ballad, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I, I, I mean. <laughs> Graham Parsons and Emmy Lou did well, that fantastic version, version I, of this. I think I'd go for that version. But, but then what's his name from Traffic? Didn't Jim Capaldi did have a hit with it? Yes, I think you're right. Yeah, you Jim, right. Jim Capaldi did have a hit with it. <laughs> uh, so it just goes round and round and round. <laughs> well, it's, it's because love Someone does Someone should do hurt. it again now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway. Little so Nas so X should do it yes. now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If we had another hour, Holly, obviously we would talk to you about Jerry Lee Lewis, the country singer, but we don't. We didn't have a, an episode to comment, you know, that followed him. I mean, he died literally the day after we did the last podcast. Yeah, that's right. So we're just saluting Jerry Lee, the wildest man in the history of rock and roll. I'm sorry we don't have time to talk about him. And I think we, we need to wrap up, really, don't we, guys? 
Sure. I mean, there is a couple of things I'd okay. just li- li- like to quote from what's going to the library yeah. this week. One is Patti Smith of Dave Marsh in Newsday, 1975, before her first album came out. Right. And, you know, it's Patti Smith. She says, it's really important to keep things a little messed up. Murder and rape will always be part of my repertory because they are very inspiring, stimulating things to talk about. Thank you, Patty. Uh, and Bobby Gentry to Lillian Roxon, Sydney Morning Herald, 1967. I wrote Billy Joe, oh, Billy Joe. I wrote Billy Joe like a story, like a play. What they're throwing off the bridge? Well, people have to read a lot more in than I intended. You see, I wanted to give Billy Joe a reason for the suicide, but I left it open so each person could draw his own conclusion. There we go. That's two of the <sighs> pieces so going this week. Yes. Wonderful, wonderful. I think Ode to Billy Joe is on this Country Soul Sisters. It's a fantastic record. record. It's an incredible mm. song. It's an extraordinary song. record. Mm. And she wrote a lot of great songs. Yeah. Mm. Jasper, mm. do you have anything you just want to... There's one bridge- thing I just wanted to mention from a couple of weeks ago, which is Little Sims is the uncompromising MC with a raw vision for UK hip-hop, Neil Kulkani and DJ Magazine in uh, March 2019, which is a, a great interview. And I just wanted to mention it because... She won the Mercury Prize a few weeks ago with Sometimes I Might Be Introvert, and I think she's a phenomenal rapper. Yeah, it's just a a nice interview. And she says, as much as I'm a person that is aware of what's happening in the world, I can still very much be in my own bubble where I shut off completely from what's happening because I'm someone that really takes things on and it actually affects me. So sometimes I have to make the decision to remove myself. I know I have a platform and I know I need to touch on things that I believe need to be heard. Pressure is a song that makes me feel like I'm freeing up all realness. With that song, especially, I'm speaking about things that need to be spoken about. I've grown up on people like Biggie Smalls and Lauren Hill, and their ability to tell stories and be phenomenal inspired me and inspired my writing. So I've incorporated that into my own work. You know, and and, and Neil Kulkarni is absolutely right. He says, yeah. in a fair world, Sims would be a superstar already. Watch her rise. And indeed, she has risen. I think she's fantastic. Uh, so me too. To uh, when she won the Mercury, I, I was punching the air. You know, yeah. Well, first of all, thank God, Ed fucking Sheeran didn't win it um, but also she was just in, you know in a class of, of her own in that, that, for that year have you heard Little Sims Holly I have spent the last year we're finishing up two books okay so so no between trying to keep up with country music which takes a lot more keeping than you'd think <laughs> I mean, we can tell that from this episode um, yeah note to self I mean but that's like I'm always looking for other things. She's yeah, yeah. great. I mean, I think you And really, that's really, going to be what really I dive something. into when we're done. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. We, we have to listen to all artists whose names begin with little, really, don't we? Whether it's little, <laughs> little Nas X or Little Sims or Little Milton. <laughs> little um, Feet. Yeah. Little Feet. Little junior Pumpkin. Oh, should we just do 10 minutes on that? <laughs> little um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Little Bob, little Bob story for, for, for fans of French sort of French rock and roll of the sort of Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, it's funny. That we, yeah, anyway, look, let's not go there. Um, <laughs> Holly, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Um, yeah, especially the morning after the CMA Awards, being yeah. up bright and bushy-tailed for this podcast. It, that's, uh, it was really a, a treat to speak with you. We will be back in a fortnight to talk with RJ Smith about his new Chuck Berry biography. Do check out the Rocksback Pages archive online. You'll find over 50,000 articles from Abba to Zappa, as they say, and over 800 audio interviews with legends from Jimi Hendrix to Kate Bush. Check to see if your local library subscribes, and if it doesn't, maybe suggest they take a trial. And on that note, we're going to say goodbye. Bye. 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 That concludes episode 140 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. 
Many thanks to special guest Holly Gleason. Visit her website at hollygleason.com and find her book, Woman Walk the Line, in all good bookshops. The hosts are Barney Hoskins, Mark Pringle and Martin Collier, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison-Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. Niger women got the melanin dripping, L-O-N-D-O-N-C-E girl living in the back, looking like fire, chili pepper, Yoruba girl tougher than imperial leather. He was getting bitter while she was getting better, diamonds are forever. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.